Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary mortals, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child, and shall bear a son, and shall name him Emmanuel. That passage has got to be one of the most famous prophecies from the book of Isaiah. It is particularly famous because of the way that it is referred to in the Gospel of Matthew, where the Gospel writer declares that what Isaiah had said was actually all about what would happen around the birth of Jesus about seven centuries later. But it is kind of hard to imagine how God could have given a sign to Ahaz that was supposed to help him deal with the crisis he was facing at that moment that would actually not come to pass for about seven centuries? That makes me think that the story of how that prophecy was given and how Ahaz heard it might help us make sense of what it was that Isaiah was really saying. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 5.15 Isaiah Meets a Young Woman Ahaz had been having such a good day when he got the bad news. It had been his wedding day, in fact, and every young man wants his wedding day to be perfect. I mean, sure, it's not like it was his first wedding day, or even his second or third. Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah, would actually be his fifth wife, but he had a gut feeling that there was going to be something special about this one. She was young, like really young and quite beautiful. She was a country girl, wide-eyed and awed by the big city, and she looked at him as if he were the most impressive thing that she had ever seen. And there seemed to be this connection between them like he had never really felt before. So Ahaz's heart was filled with joy as he stood beside her and made her promises. Yes, yes, this one was going to be special. And it was just as they were leaving and he was going to go and prepare himself 
to meet her in the royal bedchamber that one of his lieutenants came up with the devastating news. My lord, he said, your agents have returned from the north, and it seems that the rumors are true. King Rezin of Aram and King Pekka of Israel have now formed an alliance. Ahaz knew exactly what this meant, and it wasn't good. The two kings had been trying to persuade him to join with them and prepare to oppose Assyrian incursions into the area. They had been very insistent. But King Ahaz had resisted. He was only too well aware of how powerful the Assyrians were, and he suspected that they were the kinds of enemies that one should not make lightly. But now, it seemed, Israel and Aram had lost whatever patience they'd had and were moving ahead with their plans. But Ahaz had no illusions that this meant that he was now off the hook. They would still be unwilling to move forward without the support of Judah, and if Ahaz wasn't going to give it willingly, they were not going to take no for an answer. Their next step, without a doubt, would be to launch a full-scale attack on Jerusalem. This wasn't just bad news. This was terrifying. Ahaz knew that he could never withstand the combined forces of Aram and Israel, and he dared not join them against Assyria either. Ahaz turned to his new bride with an anxious look on his face, but she, not understanding the meaning of anything that had been said, merely looked puzzled. Ahaz took her hand. My dear, he said, you will soon learn that I am frequently bothered by such matters of state. I will have some work to do in the coming days and weeks, but let us forget all of this for now. You and I have some celebrating to do. And with that, he picked her up. Oh, it was amazing how light she was to carry and swept her away to the royal bedchamber. Ahaz and Abijah did have a wonderful night together. Or at least Ahaz had a wonderful night and never really got around to asking Abijah about it. Frankly, though, the king felt as if he were in love with her, a kind of love that he had never felt before. The way that she looked at him and deferred to him like his other wives didn't made him feel important and powerful and he liked that feeling. And so in the weeks that followed the wedding, 
he made a point of spending as much time with her as he possibly could. He brought her into his council meetings, where she sat silently as the men talked together about what they should do in the face of this Israel-Aram threat. There was much discussion about the possibility of Judah entering into some other alliance, perhaps even an alliance with Assyria itself, that could gain them some protection. Messengers were sent and discussions opened, but there seemed little chance that anything would come of this avenue in time to give real help to Judah. As time went by, and no diplomatic solutions seemed to be available. Ahaz would feel a sense of dread and panic arise within him. But whenever he looked over to where Abijah sat, she would just look back at him with those beautiful and adoring eyes. And he was able to not quite give in to despair entirely. At the same time, the king devoted many days and weeks to shoring up the defenses of the kingdom and the city. He visited the strongholds of the kingdom and encouraged his warriors as he directed upgrades on their weapons and armor. On these long trips, he made a point of bringing Abijah along and showing her off to his soldiers and commanders. But he was especially concerned for the defenses in Jerusalem itself. He spent so many days inspecting the walls and gates, directing repairs and doing whatever he could to make them even more impregnable. And Abijah was such a trooper. She always seemed to be so happy just to be with him. She listened and nodded with apparent interest as he spoke to his engineers and builders. So, despite all of his worries and fears, Ahaz found himself enjoying his days because he was enjoying his company so much. Of course, the knowledge that at the end of the day, he would be able to return to his bed with Abijah still at his side might have had something to do with that. But preparing for an invasion is not just about fighting men and defensive structures. Ahaz knew very well that Rezin and Pekka's most likely strategy would be to put Jerusalem under a siege. And the most important consideration when you are under siege has to do with supplies. Ahaz ordered that all the storehouses in the city should be filled with everything that could be found. But when it came to the water supply, he knew that he would have to look to that himself. Yahweh had blessed 
the city of Jerusalem with a spring that flowed faithfully just a short distance below the royal palace in the old city of David. The spring, obviously, would mean everything should the kings of Israel and Aram seek to besiege the city. Over the years, the kings of the house of David had taken many measures to protect the waters of the spring. In those days, the great tunnel to channel the water for the city had not yet been built. That great task would only be realized by Ahaz's son. But there was nevertheless a system of pools and conduits that were used to supply the city. And so, of course, on one fine morning, the king set out to inspect those as well and to consult with his engineers on what could be done to secure them in the event of a siege. By this time, of course, nobody questioned it when they saw that the king had brought along his pretty young wife. It was when Ahaz was at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's Field that he looked up and saw two figures approaching him, a man and a boy. The king recognized the man immediately. It was Isaiah, the son of Amos. Everyone in Jerusalem knew who Isaiah was. On the day when Ahaz's father, Jotham, had been made king, Isaiah had freaked out in the middle of the enthronement ceremony. Ahaz hadn't been there. He'd only been four years old at the time, but he'd had the story told to him many times. Ever since that day, Isaiah had been recognized by all as a prophet of Yahweh, which meant, for the most part, that Ahaz saw him as a nuisance and bother at best, and as a treasonous gadfly at worst. But honestly, this whole situation with Israel and Aram had gotten the king so spooked that he actually felt kind of glad to see the prophet. Maybe this time, the old man would say something that would help them all get a better perspective on this horrible situation. As Isaiah grew closer, the king was pleased to note that at least he was decently dressed. He had been known on occasion to preach naked in order to get his points across. Ahaz was relieved that he wouldn't have to make his young wife hide her eyes. It was also somewhat comforting to see that Isaiah had a young boy walking with him, likely his son. Oh yes, wasn't that poor boy also part of some piece of performance art that the prophet had done? Ah, yes. Isaiah had saddled the poor boy with the name 
Shear, Jashub, a remnant shall return. In order to underline some important point he was trying to make, the king looked at the boy with pity. The teasing he must have had to put up with from the other boys. But Ahaz quickly turned his attention away from the young boy when Isaiah began to speak. You're worried. You're terrified of resin and Pekka, began the prophet. Well, maybe you should be. After all, they have conspired together to attack Jerusalem and remove you from your throne and put the son of Tabil in your place as their puppet. Ahaz shuddered. Yes, this was exactly what he feared. But Isaiah was not finished. This is what Yahweh Elohim says, he thundered. It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. If you do not stand firm in faith, you shall not stand at all. Ahaz could hear his officials sniggering behind him. Of course, this was no laughing matter, but it was like they couldn't help themselves. The very idea that if Israel and Aram did set their mind to it, that nothing would come of it was just so ridiculous. The king himself did manage to keep a straight face, but he could tell that the prophet was not pleased with him at all. Oh, I see, that's how it is then, said Isaiah. All right. If you all need to be convinced, then just ask for a sign. Ask a sign of Yahweh, your God. It can be anything. It can be as deep as Sheol, in the depths of the earth, or as high as the heavens, and Yahweh will do it. Ahaz raised his hands. No, father, he said, there is no need. Of course, I know you speak the truth. I will not ask. I will not put Yahweh to the test. <laughs> but if anything, Isaiah heard that as an even greater insult to him. Hear then, O house of David. I know you well enough by now. I am tired of all your nonsense. But now my God is getting tired of it too. So here's what's going to happen. Yahweh himself will choose the sign that you get. With that, Isaiah spun around. His eyes quickly searched through the small crowd of retainers who had followed the king out on his survey of the conduits and ponds. He finally found the figure that he was looking for. He raised his hand and pointed directly at Abijah. The young woman's eyes widened with fright. 
No one much likes the idea of being the focus of the attention of any prophet. She certainly did not know what Isaiah might do or say next. She looked to her husband, who met her eyes with compassion, but no less fear. Look, Isaiah thundered, look, the young woman is with child. As soon as Abijah heard it, she knew that it was true. She had been wondering for days why her monthly flow had not begun. She really just needed someone to put it into words to know what must be going on inside of her. And now she saw in her husband's eyes more than just alarm. She saw the question that was there. And so she gave him the smallest nod of her head and allowed her lips to turn up into a timid smile. But, of course, the prophet had not finished thundering, and both Ahaz and Abijah still feared what he might say next. After all, not all pregnancies ended happily. After their silent exchange, they both turned their gaze back to Isaiah, anxious about his next words. But they need not have been. She shall bear a son, and she must name him Emmanuel. By the time your boy has grown up enough to be weaned from his mother's milk and to start eating solid food like curds and honey, or at least by the time when he's old enough to tell the difference between right and wrong, by then these two kings that you are so afraid of will see their lands become completely desolate. That was the message that the prophet gave to the king and his young wife that day. Though, when it was remembered by Isaiah's disciples and written down later, the language had gotten a little bit more flowery. Once the prophet had left, Ahaz and Abijah spoke together for a little while apart from everyone else. Whatever else was going on, they both felt extremely happy right then. Abijah felt certain that everything Isaiah had said would come to pass, and she spoke to Ahaz about how she longed to hold her newborn son in her hands. Ahaz couldn't help but be a bit more thoughtful. He was pleased, of course, that he would finally have a son. 
Up until now, he had only managed to produce a few daughters and a couple of bastards. But he would have to give some thought to the name that Isaiah wanted them to give the child. It was true that you hardly wanted someone who called his own son Shir Jashub to be giving you advice on naming your child. But Emmanuel, what would it be to have a son whose name meant that God is with us? Yes, Ahaz would expect great things of this child. A lot of ink has been spent over the years discussing one particular word in the seventh chapter of the book of Isaiah. That word is translated as young woman in most modern translations. The problem is that when the Gospel of Matthew quotes this passage, it uses the word virgin instead. The Hebrew word that occurs in the original text, most scholars agree, simply means a young woman, a woman who might or might not be a virgin. But sometime around the 2nd century BCE, a Greek translation of what we call the Old Testament was made, a translation commonly called the Septuagint, and it translated the word as virgin. And it seems likely that the writer of the Gospel of Matthew was using the Septuagint. The problem is not just that Matthew seems to be using a poor translation. The problem is that he makes this one mistranslated word the centerpiece of his argument that Jesus the son of the Virgin Mary, is the fulfillment of the prophecy given in the book of Isaiah. And so some commentators have felt honor-bound to argue over the meaning of the original Hebrew word, to argue that it actually meant virgin all along. But here's the thing. It's not just about the meaning of one word. When you read the full context of the story in Isaiah, it is clear that the sign Isaiah is talking about is one that will be seen by King Ahaz himself. The young woman, therefore, is already pregnant. And the political realignment that Isaiah describes will take place within a few years of her child's birth. In fact, if you read on in Isaiah, it becomes clear that the child in question is likely Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, heir, and successor. That is Hezekiah, whose mother's name was Abijah. 
so it seems that we may even know the name of the young woman at whom Isaiah pointed that day. As for Matthew's reference to this prophecy, and the whole question of whether he misunderstood and misused it to create his idea of the virgin birth, well, that's really a whole other discussion. I do prefer to give Matthew the benefit of the doubt. His method of using the Old Testament passage is not really all that far out of line with the common practices in that time and place. And anyways, I don't think that his central point is actually to put the emphasis on Mary's virginity, but rather on the central idea of his gospel, that Jesus himself is the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of Emmanuel that Jesus is all about how God is truly with us in this troubled world. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so that you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks. A five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or some other podcasting platform is a great way to help other people find this podcast. The theme music for the podcast is Ada. The mood music for this episode is Spellbound. The music is by Kevin McLeod, is licensed under the Creative Commons, and can be found at incompetech.com. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible, on the Facebook page Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at Retelling the Bible. WordPress.com. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.